0: Tune into radical philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil, and rational argument. We've learned from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolff, and Hagengruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. Beauty begins the moment you decide to be yourself. Coco Chanel. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today I'm speaking with Professor Heather Widows about the philosophy of beauty. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Could you give us a little bit of background information about yourself? Yes, I'm a professor in the
1: Department of Philosophy at the University of Birmingham, where I have been for a very long time. My background is moral philosophy and I've mostly worked in global ethics, feminist ethics, bioethics and my current work is all about beauty from everything from beauty practices like hair removal all the way to cosmetic surgery and my main interest is
0: about beauty. So aren't this probably a difficult question but what would your definition of beauty be?
1: Well very much interested in contemporary beauty ideals and the emerging beauty ideals. So it's it's more about a range of what counts as beauty, but key, I think, youth, which shouldn't come as a surprise, but also thinness, and thinness comes in various forms. Thinness with curves, model thin with die gaps, but thin in one way or another. Smoothness and smoothness and firmness are becoming much more important in a technological and visual culture and that connects to hairlessness but also to things like golden skin which is a global norm. So thinness, smoothness, firmness and youth would be the kind of range of what I'm thinking about particularly for female beauty although some of that tracks to male beauty. Not the thinness but definitely the firmness and smoothness.
0: What was it that inspired you to study beauty?
1: Well, that's kind of my million-dollar question. I don't really know the answer to that. I've done a lot of work on feminine norms, so I guess I've always been interested in that. My background in virtue theory makes me think about ethical ideals, so in a way it kind of puts together some of my early work on virtue theory with my concern about gender oppression, although the claims that I've ended up making are very different from that. So one of my colleagues teased me that it was because I had turned 40 and was trying to bring up a young girl in the age of pink and purple and watching my daughter grow up and the pressures to conform perhaps pushed me over. But I don't really know the answer to why beauty. Maybe I also thought that it was going to be something a little less serious than some of the work I'd done. Some of the work that I did on global sales of body parts or on access to abortion. I think perhaps I thought that beauty would be a bit of light relief from the horrors of global ethics. But the more I've studied beauty, the more I see it as a profoundly important ethical issue, um, especially in a visual culture, where I think things like body image anxiety are becoming effectively a global epidemic.
0: Do you think there's any truth in that old saying, beauty is only skin deep?
1: I think there's there's increasing truth in it. I I would argue in... um, in our contemporary world where beauty seems to matter more and more as the visual culture increases. So things like posting a selfie, there's a real sense in which our identity is increasingly in that kind of presentation of ourselves. So we don't just have to be camera ready at weddings and special occasions, but almost all the time. So increasingly, I argue in the book, our self really is in our visual self but not just our actual self. I talk about three points of the self. The actual self where we're often critical you know, of our bodies, our flabby, failing bodies but we're also invested in our transforming body and in our imagined self, the perfect means the, the end point for so the, the self that we imagine might result from our cosmetic surgery or our exercise regime. And in, in a sense, I think that those are all part of how the self is being constructed under the beauty ideal.
0: How does the concept of beauty change from country to country?
1: That, that, that's a common critique I would say when I present. I have a number of claims about the beauty ideal becoming an ethical ideal. One is about becoming a more global ideal. One is about the self, uh, I and mean, uh, one is about the nature of choice in, in this context. So in terms of the beauty ideal becoming more global, I argue that the traditional claims that are very, the beauty ideals are always changing, they're always different, so it can't be a very demanding and dominant ideal. I think that those are less sustainable as the ideal for female beauty becomes global. So it's not the case that beauty is the same everywhere, but it is the case that the trends are converging. So, for instance, while in some places, fuller, bigger, fatter, whatever, whatever word there is, figures are still desirable, they are generally thinner than they were. I often, say, oh, well, you there's lots of adoration of large women in traditional cultures, so called traditional cultures. And that's increasingly not true. So if you look at preferences in Africa for thinness I and mean, increasingly true in places where fatness was once preferred, such as Africa or India. And you can look at various places to track this. So you know for instance rise in eating disorders is evident across the world. So there are cultural differences with how Conforming to the beauty ideal is justified. So, for instance, you would find it less likely for people to talk about dieting in places where not having enough food is still feeling shameful. So you will get Indian women who will never speak about dieting, but nonetheless will restrict their diet significantly. Or you will get purging in certain African cultures that is justified for other cultural reasons. But nonetheless, what the aim is, is to be... In firm shape. Likewise with justifications for cosmetic surgery, they're often very culturally specific. So in one study, sociologist, Deborah Gingman, found that uh, American women will justify cosmetic surgery about deserving it. They've earned it, they deserve it, they're doing it for themselves. Whereas British women who are in a public health care system will never use that language. It will be about how they needed it for some reason. So the justifications are different, but so often the practices are very similar, and what, the, what is being aimed at is that similar figure. Um, sometimes it's curved. It's not the same single blue kink, but the range of what is acceptable is getting narrower. So less and less, I think, is that argument, oh, well, it's very different from one place to another. What is different is often fashions, whether they're cute or sexy or different types, but in terms of thinness, smoothness, firmness, and youth, it is ever more the
0: same. Is there a connection between beauty and philosophy? I, I guess there are
1: lots of connections between beauty and philosophy. One, if one goes back to, um, to Plato and the beautiful and the good, and then you think through medieval philosophy, where you know beautiful women often represented the virtues, and yet real women were often disregarded. The, the interest in actual beauty, physical beauty of real bodies has perhaps been less discussed than what we might imagine given the history of beauty and philosophy. So we have a lot of secondary feminist work on political philosophy but we have very little on moral philosophy and beauty as an ethical ideal of the type of Arguments that I've been making about the beauty ideal becoming an ethical ideal, something that we judge ourselves good and bad by.
0: How does beauty affect people's lives? So there's a sense
1: in which human beings as embodied beings have always been interested in, in beauty in one sense. We've always painted ourselves. We've always adorned ourselves. But in a, in a very real sense, as the technological possibilities change, Beauty is becoming ever more demanding. So what we can do, and therefore what we begin to do, is is much more than what we used to do. So as beauty becomes an ethical ideal, and something that we judge ourselves by, we ever more think that the goods of the good life, happiness, relationships, success, are all connected to our physical appearance. And this is a message that we get ubiquitously from adverts, from the media, But if only you look the right way, all the other things will happen. And this is something that young women particularly have embraced and believed. So if you look at some of the statistics, you know, over 90% of young women in the UK would believe that how they look will matter more than anything that they can do or say. And those are quite scary statistics. Um, And there's some lovely quotes that psychologists find about some young girls saying things like, oh, you know, if only I was, a size ten, my grades would come up, I'd have a boyfriend, I would be more successful. So this kind of message is is very ubiquitous and and pretty well believed, especially by the young. And yet of course that's not the case. We know that in fact if you put too much emphasis on how you look, then it is it's not likely that you will end up being happy. And of course ultimately it is not ideal that it's possible to attain the old sag, wrinkle and die. So there's this great difference between the striving to improve the self by improving the body and the actual results that one will get from improving the body.
0: You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 8.55 on your AM dial, and I'm speaking to Professor the Widows, about the philosophy of beauty. Could you tell us about some ethical issues surrounding beauty? So my,
1: my main interest in my current book, Perfect Me, is about how the beauty ideal is becoming an ethical ideal and that this is transformative of how we think about ourselves. So when we say things like, oh, you let yourself go. But these are becoming moral judgments rather than just prudential or ethical judgments. So we're making claims that appearance really does define us. And there are a number of arguments that I make about why this is an ethical ideal. Partly it's because we increasingly believe that improving our appearance will deliver us the good of the good life. Partly it's because of the moral claims that we make about beauty. So you let yourself go is a moral claim that we should make an effort, we should make the most of ourselves. And we read virtues and vices from appearance. So even very young, three, four, five-year-olds will attach character traits to thinnest threats. So we think that those who are thinner are cleverer, more dynamic, more determined, and um, all these virtuous traits attached. Those who are bigger we think are lazy and are less respectful of themselves and others. And so the list goes on. And we can see this very clearly in things like fat shaming. So the kind of moral emotions that attach to failing at beauty are shame and disgust. And um, fat shaming is a good example, but also to all kinds of appearance Practices. So a, a very clear example is, I think, body hair um, and how we have changed our views about body hair. And again, this is a kind of rising demand to meet what are increasingly high minimal appearance standards. So increasingly, it's the case that body hair is seen as something that is unnatural and even disgusting. So if you look at how people talk about seeing body hair they say things like oh well you know if i was in the shower at the swimming pool you know i wouldn't make a judgment but i might stand a few feet away so that's a kind of a, a quite strong moral reaction to something that a generation ago two generations ago would not have been regarded as necessary to meet basic appearance standards so as demands rise you get this kind of shift where beauty practice become regarded as hygiene practices so body hair removal goes from something that is optional occasional to something that's seen more like teeth cleaning or hair brushing and this kind of happens to a whole range of beauty practices so in some countries we are already at the place where Botox is regarded as a minimal practice in other places like South Korea or Brazil Cosmetic surgery has become normalised and naturalised, different cosmetic surgery, but nonetheless the demands are rising and then you get to a point where will it be the case in the middle of the next century where all people have to have cosmetic surgery just to be good enough, just to meet minimal standards.
0: Yeah, well you think too, like even with hair removal, or going under the knife. I mean, these are very painful practices, aren't they? They certainly can be.
1: I mean, there's lots of people who talk about beauty practices always being uh, you know, self-pampering, they're indulgent, they're luxurious. It's hard to say when you think about waxing or surgery, as you say. And yet, Even when women are engaging with these, depending on how far they have fallen under the beauty ideal as their dominant ethical ideal, they can, even the most horrific practices, can sometimes feel to women like they're good to do and that they're doing them for themselves. And this kind of narrative of I'm doing it for me abounds in beauty practices. And this is one of the the ways in which things that are potentially incredibly risky and dangerous and life-threatening, becomes something that routine and normally done. And this kind of, this, in terms of the ethics of this, it upturns the standard ethical assumptions that we make. So, for instance, when it comes to something like cosmetic surgery, we still assume that as long as individuals have consented, then this must be an ethical thing to do. But that assumes that what women are valuing is mostly health, Right, so informed consent when it comes to surgery in a health context, individuals are weighing up the pain of the surgery next to the good of returning to health. When it comes to cosmetic surgery, people are weighing up the pain of the surgery next to something much more intangible, uh, next to the picture of their improved, perfect self. These are very different kinds of judgments and one where... If you don't recognize that the beauty ideal has become this dominant ideal, then you cannot understand why women would choose to do the most risky things and painful things. And yet we have not addressed that in our policy and ethical practice. That's absolutely the case. I don't think yet we have fully understood at all why such practices are so routinized. I mean, and just to take another example, because cosmetic surgery is not routine in the sense that most women are not having it, at least in most countries. But body hair removal is routine and global. So, for instance, are some of the riskiest practices in the world might be skin lightening and tanning, both of which are incredibly risky. So we, we, know the, we know the risks of tanning now. And skin lightening is, is, is such a risky practice that the World Health Organization has declared it a public health risk across much of Asia and Latin America. And yet routinely women with black skin lighten, women with white skin seek that golden mean. So again, this is kind of the, goal, the, the global ideal emerging.
0: So I haven't really heard very much about skin whitening. Do you put sort of a, some sort of chemicals onto your skin to lighten it?
1: Yeah, it, it's usually chemically done. So the the biggest selling beauty products, for instance, across most of Asia and Africa, are skin lightening creams. They're full of many risky chemicals, including in some places mercury. But it's also the case that. The longer the chemicals are in the cream, then the the more dangerous they become. And these are the chemicals that are sold to some of the poorest women in the world. For instance, one study recently in Tanzania found that the skin lightening cream that the poorest women were buying, the chemicals had intensified, but also the warnings were no longer on the packets. So warnings include things like the need to stay out of the sun. And yet these warnings had gone, so women end up with skin that is, the aim is to smoothen and lighten and yet too much overuse or going out in the sun results in burning and painful skin. And yet the norm and the requirement for lighter skin to be beautiful skin is, is, is very pronounced in, in, in very many places. And anecdotally, so I have no paper to tell me this, but in my work in Global Ethics, anecdotally, I have been told by development workers that even in the poorest places in, in Africa, you will find women prioritizing skin lightening cream over antiretrovirals. So when people say to me things like, oh, how do you move from serious issues of Global Ethics to some trivial issue of beauty that only affects rich women, I have to say that that's just not the case. It is the case that the poorest women in the world invest in beauty to the extent that they can. And the belief that being beautiful will deliver in some form is uh, increasingly embedded. And the more that is technologically possible and the more that we identify ourselves with our virtual self, the self that we share online, in selfies, the more we communicate in non-textual and visual ways, then I can only see these demands rising and more and more being required just to be normal, to be good enough. And that's a very bleak and ethically troubling
0: future. So do you you think that women really don't realise that they're risking their lives and their health for these beauty products or surgeries?
1: I think it becomes the risks become more worth it the more, that we, the more women fall under the beauty ideal, the more that they believe and they buy that conforming to it will produce their best self, then the more they are willing to take these risks and the risks are harder and harder to weigh. So it's not in any sense that they are not weighing them. It's just what is worth it to them seems to be so much more important. So this is the kind of investment that I talk about in the, the moving of the self to the body. So examples that I use, so I, I, I make this argument starting with the kind of very traditional arguments about sexual objectification and the identifying of the self in the body but then argue that in beauty objectification, so so much of what's happening in sexual objectification is a sexual threat. It's about being desirable in the male gaze and the sense that one is an object of sexual desire. Whereas in the beauty gaze, you can be objectifying of the self and without the threat that you might be sexually used, without the threat of rape or of other kind of use, and even without sexual desire. So it's much less, I argue, in the beauty days about being sexually attractive than having attained this ideal of beauty. So we can objectify, for instance, somebody on the red carpet as sexually desirable, but we can also objectify them as the extent to which they conform to the beauty ideal, the extent to which they're, you know, they might be firm, long-legged, enough. And, you know, a good example of this is kind of what sociologist Ross Gill calls the red circles that you see in magazines. You know, red circles around a bit of cellulite or red circles around hairy underarms or, you know, all the opposite. So in that sense when we are objectifying we may not be objectifying in a, in a sexual way at all. And to understand why that ideal feeds into our own ideals we need to shift our understanding of objectification from simple gendered sexual objectification to a form of beauty objectification. And beauty objectification is in some ways more insidious than sexual objectification. Sexual objectification in a way is much easier to resist because it's just turning one into an object and a sexual object, and it's all of those kind of second wave claims about being a near body. But in beauty objectification, One is never just a mere body, right? One is also identifying the self with that. So one is both subject and object. And the ideal self, the imagined self, is never a mere object. It is always a doing, being, succeeding self. So this makes UC objectification far more conspicuous. And I do not think this is something that we have yet properly conceptualized and recognized. And if we begin to do that, so that is one of my arguments about how we get to the self under the beauty ideal. But if we begin to do that, we can understand why the imagined self is such a powerful driver and why things like very time-consuming and demanding beauty practices become regarded as self-care, self-pampering, respect for the self and In that sense, it's much easier to ignore and accept and embrace and even enjoy practices that, in another context, we think, why on earth are people spending time and money and pain
0: and effort
1: on something that delivers very little?
0: Yes, exactly. Now, do you think that there would be cases where beauty could be a disadvantage to someone? So this
1: is, is, you know, so the extent to which beauty might improve prospects or reduce prospects, these are very kind of contested empirical claims. And, and, you know, as, as I read the empirical evidence, it does seem to me that there is some documented empirical advantage to being more attractive rather than less attractive. But this seems to be much smaller than, certainly than, the beauty industry and our Shared an increasing assumptions about beauty. Would believe, would would believe. It does seem that there is certain, you know, taller men and thinner women, slightly more money, more likely to get callbacks to interviews, more likely to be re- well regarded by their teachers. But this this is called the halo effect, and it's relatively small. There is assumptions about beauty being less kind of you know so academic women's is a, a great example where you oh, you can't be too beautiful to be an academic woman. And I, there's, there's not much empirical evidence that I've found on that. I do think it's the case that it's very hard to be a very made-up academic woman, and I'm slightly sceptical about many of those claims that, oh, it's because in academia we've kind of got beyond that. Since I've been working on this, the number of academic women who have sort of confessed to me very guiltily about their engagement in beauty practices, even women who appear very non-made-up and not traditionally beautifying, but yet, you know, religiously diet and, you know, or have done all kinds of things that they haven't told anybody about. And I think it's not really the case that there are areas where being very beautiful in the terms of being thin enough and firm enough and smoothiness would be a disadvantage. I think there are certain types of more superficial presentation that are not acceptable in some places. But I also think that very many of those claims are about class and they're used to divide and to criticize particularly poorer women, and women of ethnicity, and I completely reject those as ways forward. Um, In terms of how we address the beauty ideal, it cannot be that we Blame women, individual women, for what they do and do not do. And too much of the critiques of beauty ideals have been suggestions such as, oh, you should just simply not do any of this. Suggestions that really are only possible for women in quite privileged communities. So the academic community being a very clear one of middle class, privileged, often white women for whom rejecting the beauty ideal is a real option. In an increasingly visual culture for very, very many women, that is just not an option. It doesn't help us move forward. It simply serves to demarcate certain women from other women. So I I would completely reject those kind of approaches.
0: Well, thank you very much for coming onto the program today.
1: Thank you so much for
0: having me. It's been a real pleasure. And I've been speaking to Professor Heather Widows about the philosophy of beauty. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thanks so much for listening.